Obviously, Rob, the last year and a half have been a nightmare in very many ways because of the whole COVID pandemic and things like that, especially when it comes in our circles talking about how it's affected the movie industry. We have recently been going through a period where it looks like we've been in the recovery mode. We've been coming out of it. Everything's looking good. There's a vaccine. You know, everything's looking great. But then there's still a lot of people who didn't take it seriously. Combine that with the Delta variant, we've seen numbers starting to climb, and now we've got some movies getting delayed again. Paramount, of course, yesterday we talked about this, announced that they were moving their film Clifford the Big Red Dog off of its uh, release schedule, and they don't know when they're going to put it back in. We discussed, you know, now what's the possibility of Shang-Chi and all that kind of stuff, whatever. But Rob, one of the interesting things that we kind of floated for a second was, I don't know, maybe movie theaters should require proof of vaccination. We said, you know, that's not going to happen. I mean, it's not going to happen. You know, we're just kind of floating that. Well, maybe it is. As news has come out this morning, this is coming to us from Variety, that New York City, not the state as a whole, but New York City, is going to require vaccine proof for indoor restaurants, gyms, and performances. Now, this is what they said over there. New York City will require proof of vaccination for people going to indoor activities like restaurants, gyms, and performances, Mayor Bill de Blasio announced on Tuesday. The program will launch August 16th and will be enforced beginning September 13th. The policy is one of the first of its kind in the United States. Other large cities like Los Angeles and San Francisco have seen an increase in COVID-19 cases, and the Delta variant spreads have resumed requiring people to wear face masks indoor again. Now, what is not mentioned here specifically in the article, Rob, is movie theaters. They say performances, but they specifically then talk about like Broadway shows, you know, the people going indoor where there's actors on stage and things like that. So I didn't read anything in here about movie theaters, but if they're going to start requiring proof of vaccination to go into a restaurant, if they're going to start requiring proof of vaccination to go into a gym or to go into a Broadway show, it doesn't seem to me like, it, even if it's not listed right now, that it wouldn't be too far of a stretch for them to then include movie theaters. And for all <laughs> we know, this is already including movie theaters. The, you know, the article itself just doesn't uh, include that here yet. Right. To me, it's a double-edged sword. It's a double-edged sword. Because on the one hand, I would think, hey, I would feel, I mean, I'm vaccinated, so you know, I already know that my chances of contracting you know, the the, uh, the virus are not eliminated, but they're drastically reduced. So I generally feel pretty comfortable whenever I go anyway. But if I knew going into a movie theater that everybody in there had shown proof of vaccination, I'd feel even more comfortable. And there's probably a number of people, Rob, that would feel more comfortable going to the movie theaters if they knew that everybody in there was vaccinated. That's the one side of the sword. On the other side of the sword, though, is that, well... That's like 48% of the American population right now that is eliminated from going to movie theaters. So on the one hand, yay, more people might feel comfortable going to the movie theaters. But on the other hand, well, <laughs> the cutting edge of that is that there's, you've now excluded a whole bunch of potential patrons from the movie theaters. So if I'm a movie theater owner, I'm not quite sure how I would feel about that. Good on one hand, bad on the other. So I'm not I'm not really sure how I'd feel about that. Now, as just an individual movie fan, 
as somebody who believes in science and, and things like that, I, I like the idea in principle, but that doesn't mean there aren't drawbacks. And and we just talked about what that could be for the movie theater industry. So I'm not 100% sure whether it would be a good or a bad thing or not. Rob, you're seeing what's unfolding now in New York with them implementing a new rule that you're going to have to prove that you're vaccinated to go into certain indoor activities, restaurants, live shows, gyms, things like that. Could this extend to movie theaters? And if so, what would you see as the pros and the cons of such a move? Well, I think it probably absolutely will extend to movie theaters. I mean, it does say performances. And I, I say that, well, I would assume that that would just, I just assume it does apply to movie theaters. I mean, I think, you know, what we're seeing here is, like, the, the now that we have more data with more and more vaccinated people and, and we're, we're seeing the Delta variant and there's a, actually there's a lot more data about how this disease is working now that we have... Um, half the population vaccinated, we can talk about breakthrough infections, which there have been very few, and they're learning more about how this works. And, you know, the vaccinations have been, for the most part, working. And and I think that really, as we're watching COVID cases go up, there's a, there's a common factor, John, in why people are coming down with COVID, and it's mostly those who are unvaccinated. So maybe in the next month, we'll see a lot more people get vaccinated, at least I would hope so, so less people get sick. But, you know, this is still a raging global pandemic. And I think that these measures are something that are necessary. Unfortunately, I wish they weren't. But yeah, again, I it, it is it is precarious, especially from a business point of view, what is going to be best for business and what's going to hurt business. And then the bigger question is what's best for society and what might hurt society and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. a lot of questions still out there. I just thought this was very interesting. I wasn't expecting to see this. Next interesting thing, Rob, do you think we could see other major cities like Los Angeles, like San Francisco, like Chicago? You know, do you think we could see other cities implement this or do you think they're going to take a Let's wait and see how much chaos this causes in New York first before we make a decision. What do you think is going to happen? Well, I mean, I, I again, I think this this is a situation that changes from, in a way, day to day, week to week. So maybe we can see cases go down in the next month. Um, but I, I just the way our country is very divided, uh, we don't we don't have consensus. And without that, when half the country does one thing and half the country does something else, it's very difficult to bet on anything. And I, I think that's really hampering this country's ability to accomplish a goal. Thank God it's not like, oh, I don't know, World War II, because <laughs> where would America be then? <laughs> Trying to figure out which way do we want to go. So I don't know, man. I'm hoping that things get better. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of what we're all hoping for here. The question is for you guys. Uh, it's it's a at the very least, you could say it's a bold move. New York seems to be now requiring uh, vaccinations for going inside. By the way, I've had a number of you guys in the live chat point or writing in saying that this move does include movie theaters, which is kind of interesting. Let's see how that all plays out. How are you guys feeling about this? Jump down to the comment section below civilly and leave your thoughts. Uh, by the way, our friends Donaldo Martinez and uh, Epic Dubtime both sent in Super Chat badges in the live chat. Thank you so much, guys. appreciate that very much. All right. With that down, guys, let's go to a second off the top, and, and that is this. Rob, yesterday on, well, you know, for the last couple of days, the biggest 
news in, in movie circles has been the ongoing now lawsuit between Scarlett Johansson and Disney. And, you know, as a result, as in every legal proceeding, some people are drawing a line in the sand. Some people take one side. Some people take the other. All this kind of stuff. Now, Rob, I did a companion video yesterday. And in it, I basically said this. Disney really doesn't have a legal leg, leg to stand on here. And I'll tell you exactly how this is going to end. This is going to end with Disney will do more public grandstanding. They're going to say a lot of things publicly. They're going to do what they can to save face. But at the end of the day, this is never going to trial. It's never going to trial. At the end of the day, Disney is going to sit down with Scarlett Johansson's lawyers, and they're all going to come up with a number that Disney will pay Scarlett Johansson, and they're going to settle this out of court. It might take six months. It might take a year. It might take two years, but this thing's never going to trial. I mean, I, I just don't, unless there's a lot of information that neither side have revealed to the public yet, which is always a possibility that there's information that a lot of people don't know yet. And if that's the case, maybe that would change our minds and change our opinions. But right now, there's no way this thing's going to trial. Disney's going to settle. They'll do some public grandstanding, and then they're going to settle. But what has been interesting to me, as, as a lot of you guys know, I have a little bit of a legal background. What has been interesting to me is watching some people discuss the Scarlett Johansson Disney situation who clearly don't have a fundamental understanding of contract law and how that contract law could actually be applied to a situation like this one, like Scarlett Johansson versus Disney. And so what I thought would be an interesting idea for us here is to actually take a few minutes and look at this Scarlett Johansson versus Disney situation and fundamentally break down and, and hopefully give you guys a bit of an understanding of how contract law works and how certain doctrines of contract law may be applied to the Scarlett Johansson and Disney situation. At the very most here, what I hope to accomplish here is that when you guys see more stories coming out about Scarlett Johansson versus Disney, you guys will have a little bit more of a fundamental understanding of what legal doctrines are at play here and how it might implicate and how it might influence the outcome of this thing. So that's what I want to do here. So in order to do that, we are going to take a moment and take a visit over to the Campia classroom, if you guys will indulge me. Now, before we jump in here, Rob, I want to make sure everybody understands this. I have never spent a single day in an American courtroom. I am not an American law system legal expert. I have I have basic funda fundamental understanding of contract law, which I did work in for a bit and all that kind of stuff. So, but when we start talking about contracts here, if you ever have an issue with a contract, do not go, I heard a guy on the YouTubes once say, don't do that. Go get an actual lawyer who practices law and go and discuss them. That's very, very important. If you have a contract dispute of any kind, don't depend on what you heard on the Googles or the YouTubes. Go and actually talk to a lawyer. Okay. So, okay, there we go. Let's start with the first basic thing. We're going to talk about two main things here. Number one, we're going to first understand what makes a contract. And then secondly, we're going to talk about how could a contract be broken? And then specifically, how does that those principles and those doctrines of breaking a contract apply to the Scarlett Johansson and Disney situation and how it could affect the outcome? Okay. Okay. Let's start with this. Let's start with what do you need 
in order to have a contract. Okay, first thing, there are four, there are many, many things. And by the way, Adam Muhammad sends in a super chat badge in the live chat. Thank you, Adam. I appreciate that, man, for the support. There are four basic things you need. There are more than this. It's more complicated than this, but I'm just giving you the general idea, okay? The general idea. Four things you need to make a contract. One, you need an offer. That sounds straightforward enough, Rob. It sounds, of course, you need an offer. Basically, I say to Rob, Rob, I will pay you $20 to mow my lawn. All right? So there's an offer there. If Rob just showed up at my house one day and mowed my lawn and then came to my door and said, give me $20, you owe it to me. I'll say, dude, there was never an offer. There was never an offer. So principle number one, you need to have an offer. Stand straight enough. Principle number two, you need to have acceptance. So basically in this whole scenario of me trying to get Rob to mow my lawn, I can make the offer, Rob, I'll pay you 20 bucks to mow my lawn. And then next Saturday, he still hasn't mowed my lawn. I can say, hey, we had a contract. He says, no, I never accepted. I never said yes. So in law, you need number one. And by the way, Cutter Hale sends in a super chat badge. Thank you, Cutter. Number one, you need an offer. Number two, you need acceptance. So I say, Rob, I'll give you 20 bucks to cut my lawn. And Rob says, I accept. We now have a legally binding agreement. Here's the thing. There are two other main parts you need, though. It's not just an offer and not just acceptance. Number three, you need what's called consideration. What do I mean by consideration? Consideration means in this legally binding contract, I am getting something and you are getting something. I can't just say to Rob, Rob, will you mow my lawn next Saturday? And he says, sure. That's not a contract because there was no consideration. I can't just say, Rob, will you mow my lawn? I have to say, Rob, I will give you $20 to mow my lawn. And then Rob says, yes. So I am getting my lawn cut. Rob is receiving $20. There are some times where people have thought they have entered into contractual agreements, but there was no consideration. So number one, you need an offer. Number two, you need acceptance. Number three, you need consideration. And by the way, our friend Soul Brother Max sends in a super chat badge as well. Thank you guys. Appreciate that. All right. There's a fourth thing. Now, again, let me reemphasize. There's a million other details here and a lot of other things, but these are just the four basics, okay? You need capacity. What capacity means is this. If I said to Rob, Rob, I will pay you 20 bucks to mow my lawn, and Rob says, sure, Okay, sure, maybe that's a contract. But what happens if Rob is nine years old? Rob, if you're a nine-year-old. Uh, I do a good job, John. <laughs> that's the best voice I've heard you do. <laughs> so I have made an offer. Great. Rob is accepted. Great. There is consideration. I'm giving him 20 bucks. I'm getting my moan laud. Great. But under the law, as a nine-year-old, Rob cannot enter into legally binding agreements. He does not have capacity. Or let's say I said, Rob, let's say Rob is the age he is. And I say, Rob, cut my lawn for 20 bucks. And he says, sure, but Rob is filthy drunk. Filthy, stinking, uh, slobbering, drooling drunk. Yes, Chad, I'm nine years old and I've never had vodka before. 
It's fantastic. And he's completely smashed. Well, guess what? In a court, a court would say Rob did not have capacity to accept that offer. So no contract would exist. So basic understandings. And listen, I know you're probably thinking, how does this connect with the ScarJo thing? It's important to understand this first principle before we move into the situation with ScarJo Hansen. Okay. Number one, you got to have an offer. Number two, you have to have acceptance. Number three, you have to have consideration or something that you're getting out of it. And number four, you've got to have capacity. Okay. So there's that. Okay. So as we move down here now, so when can you break a contract? Oh, one thing more, one thing more about things you need to make a contract. Notice what isn't there. It does not need to be in writing. Get that part. You does not need to be in writing. If I say to Rob, I will give you 20 bucks to mow my lawn. And Rob says, yes. And there was consideration and Rob had full capacity to accept. It doesn't matter whether it's in writing or not. We have a legally binding agreement. We have a contract, even if it's not in writing. Now, some contracts do need to be in writing. And we're going to talk about that in a second. But I just want it to be very, very clear to some people here. It does not have to be. That is not one of the requirements of contract law is that it has to be in writing. And that's important to understand for when we get on to another part here. Okay, so when can you break a contract? There's a couple of legal doctrines here, okay? When can you break a contract? Well, one of the first things that provides for you to break a contract is if there has been a breach of the contract. Bratch. When there's a bratch of the contract. When there is breach of contract, basically what that means when one side has fundamentally failed to live up to their obligations of the contract. I'll give you a great example of this, okay? Here's a great example of this. When I sold my website, the movie blog, back in the day, a true story, this is a true story. When I sold my, my website, the movie blog, back in the day, I entered into a contract with the purchaser that they were going to pay me X amount of dollars, which would be broken down. I think they were going to pay me like $8,000 a month for X amount of months, right? That was the contract. The problem is about halfway through, the owner stopped paying me the $8,000. I can't remember the exact number. Let's just for argument's sake say it was $8,000 a month, right? The new owners stopped paying me my $8,000 a month because they were having money problems because they weren't very good business people. So they stopped paying me $8,000 a month and I wrote to them and then it went like three months in a row with them failing to live up to the contract. They were breaching the contract because they were in breach of contract. I was then able to void the contract and take my website back. Okay. Even though I had, they had offered to buy it, I agreed to sell it to them. They gave me a certain amount of money. I gave them the website, so there's consideration. And we both had capacity to make the agreement. The fact of the matter is, halfway through the agreement, they breached the contract because they stopped paying me what they were supposed to pay me every month up until the full balance was paid. And because they breached the contract, 
I was able to say, I'm taking back my website, the movie blog. I'm taking it back. And I did. I took it back. And I later sold it again. So there was a breach of contract. Now, why this is important to understand here is that ScarJo, I'm just going to say ScarJo so I don't have to write out her full name every time. ScarJo fulfilled her obligations in the contract. This is so important to understand in this situation. Scarlett Johansson, in the agreement and contract that she had with Disney and with Marvel, she already fully completed all of her obligations under the contract. She appeared in the film. She functioned as a producer on the film. She promoted the film. She did the press tour for the film. She did everything that was required of her under the contract. So Scarlett Johansson's side of the contract was completely fulfilled. That is so key and important to understand because it comes into play more a little bit later on. Okay, so one reason you can legally breach a contract is if there is a breach in the contract. Okay, here's another uh, time and t- you can break a contract. The statute of frauds. Now, what is the statute of frauds? Statute of frauds. Basically speaking, the statute of frauds is that's the best way to put this is that there are some situations where a contract must be in writing okay there are some situations in which a contract must be in writing because remember a little bit earlier i mentioned that a contract a legally binding contract does not have to be in writing well the statute of frauds is basically a doctrine that says there are times when it does need to be in writing For example, uh, marriage. Marriage has to be an agreement in writing. Property deals, buying land, that has to be in writing. Some service agreements that take longer than a year to fulfill the service agreement, that needs to be in writing. However, here's the thing. The problem is some people think that when the statute of frauds is involved, only what is in writing is enforceable. That is not true. And I'm sure I misspelled enforceable. Yeah, I did. Anyway, never mind. So what we see a lot of right now going on in some online discussions is some things about Well, how detailed, Rob, some people will be asking right now, how detailed was the contract? Because this contract they have in writing and all this kind of stuff, and the statute of frauds might suggest that every single detail about their agreement has to be in the contract. However, that's not necessarily true. In the statute of frauds, sometimes uh, what you call informal um communication is enforceable right so rob if you and i enter into a property agreement let's say this a property agreement needs to be in writing and rob you and i enter into a property agreement but nowhere in that agreement does it say you're going to leave the refrigerator behind 
Okay. Mm. Nowhere in the agreement does it say you, you have to leave the refrigerator behind, but you wrote me an email that specifically said, yeah, yeah, yeah. When we, when we close the deal, I'll totally throw in the fridge. The fridge will be left at the house. Well, even though property agreements have to be in writing, if I have external communication from Rob specifically saying that, yeah, the fridge will be thrown and be a part of it. Guess what? That can become enforceable. Now it's up to the individual judge, but still that type of informal communication outside of the bonds of the contract can become quite often enforceable. So this comes up because a lot of people have been talking about the emails like Scarlett Johansson's lawyers have talked a lot about the emails between Scarlett Johansson and Marvel, between Scarlett Johansson's lawyers and Marvel and what they made commitments for. This is in many cases enforceable as if it was written in the terms of the contract itself. This is John, important can to understand. I, yes. Can I add something to that? Yes, please. Because it's specific. So I was involved in a case similar to this and there is also something called and I'm, i looked this up so i'm reading it from a, a law a law site but there's something called reasonable reliance or acting yes. on reliance yes now a lot of people have talked about in her contract that disney didn't necessarily say that it was going to get an exclusive theatrical release they're trying to play semantics however there were 23 previous marvel movies that received a theatrical release. So in her contract, when it says theatrical release, it didn't have to say uh, exclusive theatrical release because for 23 previous times, there was no Disney Plus. So there was no reason to assume it would be any different. So let me just read this paragraph. Particularly in contracts, what a prudent person would believe and act on if told something by another, like your refrigerator example, typically a person is promised a profit or other benefit and in reliance, takes steps in reliance on that promise, the refrigerator, only to find the statements or promises were not true or were exaggerated. The one who relied can recover damages for the cost of his or her actions or demand performance or the refrigerator or an exclusive theatrical release if the reliance was reasonable. Perfect. Yeah, and that is also known in some circles as common understanding. Yep. So in this case, you've seen some people online making an argument, well, in ScarJo's contract, all it says is theatrical release. It never said exclusive theatrical release. But Rob, as you were pointing out, the common understanding when theatrical release has always been up until COVID that yep. that meant an exclusive theatrical release for a certain theatrical window before going to home video. That has always been the way it was understood. And as you pointed out the word reliance there, Rob, Scarlett Johansson relied on that common understanding of it. Yes. And that is, there is much, much, much legal precedent for that. So that I'm so glad you brought that up, Rob. That's why you're so smart. Um, so that that's a, that's a perfect example of this, right? Now, here's the big thing, though, Rob. This is the thing that everybody is really talking about when it comes to the COVID situation. Oh, because COVID happened, Disney doesn't have to honor their agreement with Scarlett Johansson anymore. 
Well, this is where it breaks down. This is another way you can break a legal contract. It's called the impossibility of performance. Now, we already talked a second ago that Scarlett Johansson has already completely fulfilled her end of the agreement. She has performed her legal obligations. But there is a doctrine in law that basically says that, hey, if it becomes impossible for somebody fulfill, to fulfill their obligations, there is remedy there in law to give them relief and allow them out of the contract, right? So what a lot of people here are now saying is that COVID-19 presented Disney with an impossibility of performance, that it was impossible for Disney to live up to their end of the agreement. It just simply wasn't possible. And therefore, that allows them out of their obligations, their contractual obligations with Scarlett Johansson. Well, that's not entirely true. Here's what I mean. An impossibility of performance, basically imagine this. Imagine uh, I hire, I don't know, I know, Mark Ellis. Let's say, Rob, I hired Mark Ellis to perform comedy at my party. So I'm, I'm throwing a party and I hire Mark Ellis to come and perform. And I say, Mark, uh, you're a funny guy, but you're not that funny. I'll pay you 50 bucks. I'm, Mark, Mark Ellis is hilarious, by the way. So I agree with Mark Ellis. And I'm going to pay him 50 bucks and he's going to come perform comedy at my party, right? So we have offer. I'll give you 50 bucks. Acceptance. He says, yes. Consideration, he's getting 50 bucks, I'm getting a comedy performance. Capacity, Mark Ellis wasn't stone cold drunk at the time and neither was I. There was capacity, we have a legally binding agreement. Well, what happens though, if before my party, an asteroid falls and destroys his house, breaking both of his legs and he's in the hospital? Mark, under this thing, even though he has a contract to come and perform at my party, Mark can file for relief under impossibility of performance. That something completely unforeseen happened that he couldn't have anticipated that made it impossible for him to live up to his end of the agreement, right? Uh, and by the way, our friend Rachel Knight sends in uh, a, a super chat badge in the live chat. Thank you, Rachel. So, and, and I know everybody, by the way, by the way, everybody, I'm totally making this up. Everybody is expressing a lot of concern for Mark Ellis right now in the live chat. Mark Ellis is totally fine. So don't worry about it. <laughs> but um, anyway, so it's impossible for him to perform. So the contract can be voided. The problem is a lot of people are comparing that situation of the pandemic to a situation like which situation like this, but there are two main differences. Okay. Two main differences. Difference a, okay. Here's the first difference. Disney had a choice. If Mark Ellis had his home hit by an asteroid and it left broke both of his legs and put him in the hospital, he doesn't have a choice. He cannot make it to my party to perform the comedy. Disney had a choice. They had bad choices. Yes, I mean, I, I agree. They're, they had nothing but bad choices, but they had a choice. They had the choice to delay Black Widow even more. Now, that wouldn't have necessarily been a 
very good choice for them, but it was a choice available to them, and they chose to release it in theaters and on Disney Plus at the same time, which was a violation of their agreement. So they had a choice. Difference number two, or we'll call difference B here, is this. In the Mark Ellis situation, neither one of us had fulfilled our obligations to the contract yet. ScarJo had already performed her obligations. This changes the situation. It makes the impossibility of performance a little bit more murky. Because in the situation with Mark doing comedy at my birthday party, I hadn't given him the 50 bucks yet, and he hadn't come and performed at my party yet. It's very easy for us then to void the contract. However, not only did Disney actually have a choice in this situation, as opposed to Mark in our uh, fake example, but one of the two parties had already fulfilled their side of the contractual obligations. That makes it a little bit more dicey. It means that the impossibility of performance cannot just simply be thrown out there. It is more complicated than that. So I, this is why, Rob, at the end of the day, when you see that there was, by all legal terms, a legally binding agreement, that ScarJo did not breach her contract, that the statute of frauds doesn't really apply here because according to Scarlett Johansson's attorneys, they have explicit email communication between Marvel and Scarlett Johansson making her certain assurances. Because of common understanding, Rob, as you, as you rightfully pointed out, that the terminology in the contract was commonly understood to mean a certain thing in the rest of the industry, and the fact that impossibility of performance COVID-19 isn't a directly applicable application of the doctrine of impossibility of performance, that is why I say, at the end of the day, Rob, Disney doesn't really have a leg to stand on here. At the end of the day, they're going to do a lot of public grandstanding. They're going to say a lot of things. They're going to beat their chest, their little mouse chest. <laughs> they're going to do all the things that they're going to do to try to save some face. But in six months or a year or two years from now, this is only going to end one way. The two sides are going to have to sit down at a table and they're going to settle this long before it ever goes to court. Now, again, all that is assuming, Rob, there isn't some bombshell unknown pieces of information that neither Disney or Scarlett Johansson side are revealing to the public yet, which could totally change our perception of things. But barring that, there's no other way this ends. This ends with Disney writing a check to Scarlett Johansson. For how much? We don't know. But that's how this is going to end. I don't know, Rob. Okay, so I just thought in the midst of all this talk about Scarlett Johansson and Disney and contracts and blah, blah, I just thought it was important to equip movie fans with some basic understanding. Again, don't rely on anybody on the YouTubes. That includes me. If, it's, if, if you're involved in a legal situation involving contract law, don't rely on the stuff I just told you. Go and talk to an actual lawyer. That's very, very important. But Rob, you know, you know understanding all that and the, the great points that you made too, how do you see the Scarlett Johansson and, uh, and Disney thing ultimately ending? Well, I think, John, that like you, it's never going to see the inside of a courtroom because <laughs> Disney can't have that because then they have to open up their books which nobody wants, um, <laughs> except Scarlett Johansson's lawyers. And and look, what we're seeing now is something that was going to be played out at some point. Uh, she just got there first. 
the the whole business of movies and streaming it has changed the way Hollywood works because before getting performance bumps based on how well your movie or television series performs has been par for the course in talent contracts, especially A-list talent contracts, whether you're a star or a director. This is how a lot of stars and directors make money. They know when they're a part of a franchise that's guaranteed that they build these things in and they 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 don't get as big upfront payments as they could get because they know they're going to get performance bumps. And now with streaming, if you're in a TV series that used to go worldwide in syndication, you could make money, a lot of money for years. Nowadays, it's all a single buyout. So if you do a show on streaming that becomes a water cooler show or everybody watches, you don't get any more money, you know? So performance bumps are, are very important. And now with everything moving over to streaming, there's a lot of reasons the studios want it that way because they make a lot more money because they don't have to pay middlemen to distribute movies or TV shows. They can do it directly themselves, direct to consumers. And there's, there's really no model in place. The studios are trying to circumvent this. They're trying to get, they're just trying to get what they want and not pay the talent what they're worth. And talent's not going to put up with it. So there was going to be a battle at some point. I think Scarlett Johansson just got there first. And what's going to happen here is going to, obviously, it's going to it's going to set precedent for the industry for a long time to come, both good and bad. So it's going to be very interesting to see what happens. But I'll bet you that they want this, um, they want this, taken care of immediately especially because marvel has shang chi they've got the eternals they've got movies coming out for the next three years and all of them have very high profile stars and they want to make sure everybody's happy so i think this will be settled quickly yeah now look i i get i know we went longer on this than we normally do and i get it we we live where there's uh, we live in a society of people that just want everything in twitter bites they they don't actually want to know really what the information is they don't want to really understand a situation they just want to see a youtube headline or whatever and and move on but i thought this was important to go into a little bit more in depth and again there's a million other details that i i didn't cover here and i i'm just very i mean i am oversimplifying it by a thousand percent i totally agree but i thought a lot of these main principles were important to understand when if if you want to have an intelligent conversation about what's going on with the scarlett johansson disney situation rob I just want to quickly say that, you know, a lot of people say, well, she's made so much money. What does it matter? Well, what I think it matters is it doesn't matter who you are. You could be making 60 cents, $600, $6 million. Having contracts is the very basis of capitalism, you know, and being able to fill out contracts, sign contracts, and be able to do good business with people is, again, something all of us should support. I know it's hard to care about people that are very, very wealthy, but that's not the point. The point is the contract that was signed and people living up to their obligations. I completely agree. All right. Anyway, guys, the question is for you. What do you think about the whole breakdown there? Uh, Jump on down to the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. Okay, guys, with that down, let's move into our main topics here today, shall we? And how do we select our main topics here on the John Campia Show? Well, it's really simple. 
You guys come up with our main topics. See, whenever you come across a big topic issue or story that you feel we need to cover as a main topic on the show, just go anytime 24-7 over to www.thejohncampiashow.com slash contact. Once you get there, you'll see a form. Fill it out with your topic or question. It's absolutely free. Hit submit, and then maybe, just maybe, you might see your submission featured as a main topic here on The John Campia Show. And a special thanks to Russ Childress, who sends in a super chat badge in the live chat. Thank you, Russ. I like the little icon you put in there, too. Thank you very much, man. All right, with that down, let's get on to main topic number one. And our first main topic today gets submitted to us by Parker Sheldon, who writes, Hey, John, it sounds like we're going to have to wait a little while longer for the Miss Marvel Disney Plus series. TV Line is currently reporting that the series is going to be delayed into early 2022. While no reason was given for the delay, presumably Hawkeye's November release date didn't leave enough room for Miss Marvel to release in between projects. 2022 is now an even crazier year for Marvel fans. What are your thoughts on this? Is there any other reason for the delay? All right, thanks a lot for writing that in, Parker. And yeah, this has been really interesting because let's do a little bit of background work here. Uh, a couple of weeks ago or a little over a week ago, a big executive at Marvel came out and reaffirmed that Ms. Marvel and, Bla uh, and Blackhawk and Hawkeye are both coming out in 2021. That was what she said. She said, these two films are coming out or these two projects are coming out in 2021. That was just like a week and a half ago or somewhere around there, give or take a couple of days. Then news comes out that Hawkeye is actually coming out at the end of November which, you know, unless Hawkeye is a one-episode series, which is also called a movie, unless it's a one-episode series, there's not going to be room in 2021 to put in a Ms. Marvel show after Hawkeye, which led to some speculation about, well, is it going to be bumped to 2022? Or does it still completely mean that Ms. Marvel could come out before Hawkeye, which I thought was still a possibility? I thought they could very well still put this thing out before Hawkeye. What was more interesting to me was, are they actually going to release the episodes of Hawkeye and the Book of Boba Fett at the same time? So I started wondering, is the Book of Boba Fett going to be bumped to 2022? At any rate, lots of speculation we had. Well, apparently now, though, the guys over at TV Line are saying that they have heard, and remember, this is not Gus's gas station movie reviews dot fart. This is TV Line. They're saying they've heard it's getting bumped to 2022. Uh, they were asked, the, the, the guy at TV line was asked, is there any news on Miss Marvel's Disney plus premiere date? Only a week or two ago, they were saying 2021, but now by my calculations, after the announcement of Hawkeye premiere date, they don't have enough weeks on the schedule without doubling up a couple of episodes to which the reporter at TV line replied, I asked around and it is very safe to assume at this point that Ms. Marvel is now on track for an early 2022 premiere. And that comes to us from the folks over at TV line. Rob, I, I find this very confusing because what could have possibly changed in a week where a Marvel executive is saying this show's coming out in 2021, but now we have industry insiders saying, yeah, they announced Hawkeye for the November and now it's going to come out in 2022. I mean, ultimately it's probably, it's not that big of a deal as long as it's not being pushed to like September of 2022. But I do find the situation a little odd and a little confusing. What do you make of this whole thing? Well, I mean, obviously, there's a lot there's a lot of material coming out. And I think that if they 
you know, if Miss Marvel gets pushed into 2022, we've got What If coming out, followed by Shang-Chi, followed by The Eternals, Hawkeye, and Spider-Man No Way Home. It makes sense. It gives them more time in post-production. Then you've got the Book of Boba Fett coming out uh, for Disney. I, I just think there's a lot there. And uh, we've got enough Marvel. I don't think they need to s- slide in another new character amidst all of this. So it makes sense. I think it's it's prudent. And uh, it, it gives Miss Marvel a little bit more time to breathe. Obviously, she's a much different character, a younger character than we've... She's our first younger superhero that we've had in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So why not give her a little bit more breathing room to establish herself? Makes sense to me. Uh, I agree. Question is for you guys. What do you make of this? Now TV line is saying that, yeah, it looks like they're going to be releasing Ms. Marvel in 2022. Big deal. Not a big deal. How do you guys feel about this? Jump into the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. Okay, guys, uh, just a good big thanks to up, up, down, down, 814, who sends in a super chat badge in the live chat. Thanks for that, man. Appreciate that. Okay, guys, with that down, let's move on to main topic number two, shall we? Rob, what is our second main topic today? Well, John, this comes from Abigail, and Abigail asks, Amazon's Lord of the Rings has finished filming and set a release date for September 2022. They renewed it for season two back in 2019. So I'm wondering if they'll also use this time to get a head start on that. Obviously, it'll be a VFX heavy show, but 13 months is a long time. I wouldn't be surprised if they wanted to try and make this a yearly show instead of the traditional big gaps. Well, at first, I would say, man, it took them a long time to shoot that first season because I'm sure. <laughs> I, I, Don, I don't think in television history there was a more scrutinized show by the executives. I hope they make a making of book about this show so we can find out just how difficult it was to pull off all of this because I don't think anything has been riding on anything. I mean, come on, this show is uh, the rights deal alone and how much they're spending. It's insane. But I think maybe, you know, with the amount of time it took and the fact that they're going to spend a year in post-production, they're really going to take their time and make sure they get the show right. So from a creative standpoint, that excites me. A deadline says, Amazon's Lord of the Rings Season 1 has officially wrapped filming in New Zealand. Expected to consist of 20 episodes. Now, in this day and age, in in this day and age, that's like two seasons of a major show. Expected to consist of 20 episodes and totaling a price tag of approximately $465 million. Woo! Season one of Lord of the Rings experienced numerous hurdles, that's one way to put it, during its production. After kicking off production in February of 2020, Lord of the Rings season one is finally complete. By the way, uh, normally a TV show for a network or something is shot over the period of eight days. Eight to ten days, maybe. So the fact that they spent a year and a half shooting this show, even during COVID, I mean, I understand they probably had to stop and start and all that. Pretty crazy. Uh, so it's a long time. But I think, look, all I can say is it's. I hope it's as good as they, they released that one image. It looked beautiful. But uh, we don't really know who these characters are. We don't know much about the story. We know it takes place in the second age. I'm fascinated by this, and it's a huge gamble. It's Almost as well, it is as big a gamble as Bob Shea took on the Lord of the Rings movies themselves. So I'm looking forward to this, John. (laughs) I know I don't know enough about it to really 
look forward to it, but I like the idea of where it's set. I don't know why it's called Lord of the Rings, but I, it'll be interesting to see where it all goes. What about you? How are you feeling about this? Uh, can I just say I'm deliriously happy? I'm deliriously happy. Listen, don't get me wrong. I love the shows that we're getting out on streaming and stuff like that. But Rob, there was a time and there was an era when great shows had 22, 24 episodes per year and they were great and glorious, sometimes not so glorious and all that kind of stuff. Yes, by the way, RM and Mr. Wolfgang both send in super chat badges in the live chat. Thank you guys. Um, but there was a time when that was, and then, you know, came 16 episode seasons says, huh? And then 12 episode seasons and then 10 episode seasons and then eight. And then now we've got six episode seasons of things like this. Rob, I'm not going to lie to you. When I read that there was going to be 20 episodes of this, it moved. I'm not going to lie. It moved a little bit. I am so deliriously happy to hear this. I love the idea that they're doing this. Now, look, it's obviously very, very expensive. And it took them forever to shoot and all this kind of stuff. And by the way, there was this great, did you see this image that they put out uh, of the yep. new series? I mean, there's a lot, I saw a lot of speculation going around. Some people are thinking this is an earlier era or a reimagined Rivendell or uh, uh, not, not, uh, Gondorum? I can't remember the name of the, of the one place. Uh, not Gondor, but like Gondoran, another elven city, whatever. All I know is that I look at this and I'm like, oh God, that puts a smile on my face. That puts a huge smile on my face when I see that. And yeah, listen, I'll be honest. When I first heard that this thing was going to take like a year of post-production, because first I heard production on Lord of the Rings is wrapped. I'm like, ah, and it's coming out in September of 22. I'm like, oh, I, but the more I think about it, the post-production on this is going to be massive. And oh. like, even just for one two hour feature film, you're talking about eight months to a year of, of great post-production. If this is like 20 hours, and for all I know, Rob, maybe 20 episodes, maybe they're going to be 15-minute episodes. I mean, I don't know what Amazon's strategy is going to be, but I'm going to assume they're probably going to be like close to maybe 45-minute episodes. That's my guess. We'll see. But um, it, now it makes a lot more perfect sense. Once I saw that 20-episode count, having to do a year of post-production made a lot more sense to me. And, and so, yeah, I got to tell you, Rob, everything about this, other than the fact that we got to wait so long for it to come, other than that, I love everything. I love the commitment they've made to this. I love that they're giving us a true full season of this. I love that they made a financial commitment. They're putting their money where their mouth is by putting this much money into it. Again, this may completely, this might completely suck. I mean, it might. This Lord of the Rings thing may completely suck. Absolutely. But we won't know that till we see it. All the information that we have so far gets me excited. And uh, I love this, and I am super pumped. The question is for you guys. What do you make of this whole thing? They've wrapped production. Now we've got a year to wait, but still 20 episodes? What? I'm super excited about this. How are you guys feeling about it? Jump on down to the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. Okay, guys. With that down, let's move on to main topic number three. And our third main topic today gets submitted to us by Austin Myers, who writes, 
Hey, John and Rob. I don't know if you watch Cobra Kai or not, but it's one of my favorite shows. And I just read a story that says the star of the show, I'm not going to lie to you guys, I have no idea how to pronounce his name. So I'm going to pronounce it Zolo Maraduena is going to star in the new DC movie, Blue Beetle. I admit, I don't know much about the character, but I love seeing actors from Cobra Kai getting some recognition and chances to grow. What do you think of this casting, and does it increase your excitement for the movie? Thanks. All right, thanks a lot for sending that in, Austin. And yeah, listen, Blue Beetle is one of those projects that they've actually talked about for years. Rob, do you remember a bunch of years ago, there was even talk that they were going to do like a buddy cop movie of Blue Beetle and Booster Gold. Yep. Remember that? Yep. And that thing kind of just fell to the wayside and there's some other talks. And then they said, no, 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 we're doing a Blue Beetle movie. And then they brought a director on board and it's been kind of quiet on that front. Well, now it's kind of looking like this star of Cobra Kai is probably going to be Blue Beetle. This comes to us from Screen Rant who writes, according to a report from The Wrap, again, I, I apologize. I do not know the pronunciation of his name. So Zolo uh, Marduena is in talks with Warner Brothers in D.C. to play Jaime Riaz in Blue Beetle. Uh, Marduina is, is a recent breakout star of the Karate Kid sequel series, Cobra Kai, where he plays one of the lead roles in Miguel Diaz. A deal for him to star in the Blue Beetle is not finalized, but this report indicates that the young actor is on the verge of playing the fan favorite D.C. hero. All right, here's the thing. I don't like Cobra Kai. Sorry, I don't like Cobra Kai. My wife loves it and loves Cobra Kai. Kaori what? loves Cobra Kai. Uh, almost everybody I know loves Cobra Kai. And for that, that's awesome. That is great. I was very, very excited. Rob, when they first announced they were doing Cobra Kai, I was super excited about it. I thought it was a brilliant idea. And listen, I, I watched like the first four episodes and it just wasn't for me. I, I have no complaints about it. I'm just saying it just wasn't for me. That's all. But a lot of people I know love this show, love it. And I think it's great that from such a popular show that started as a YouTube original and is now on Netflix, that a young star, breakout star from that can get a big break in starring in his own DC superhero movie. I think this is fan. This is, this is the type of story that puts a smile on your face, to be honest with you. For two reasons. Number one, Blue Beetle is, a, is not the most popular DC character, but he's one that has a definite fan base. He's a fan favorite for a lot of people. But number And then number two, you got this show that a lot of people love in Cobra Kai, and one of these young stars is now going to get a break in doing this. And that's just a feel-good kind of story. So I'll tell you what. I am not a very good judge on you know what this kid's talent level is because I haven't watched enough of that show to see or judge to know if he's any good or not. But clearly he's a fan favorite. People really like him. And I think the story of him getting a break like this, Rob, is actually pretty exciting. Anyway, Rob, and there was still some talk around. Some people thought it should be like Cord, uh, should be you know, Blue Beetle. But I like the idea of them doing Jaime Reyes as their Blue Beetle. At any rate, Rob, you hear about this. I don't know if you watch Cobra Kai or not. What do you think about this matchup in this casting? Well, first of all, I think the I, I like Cobra Kai. Um, I uh, I think this is good casting. It's interesting because the version of Blue Beetle they're going with is a newer version of the character, and I'm a huge fan of the Ted Cord version the, that was popularized in, in the 80s, but I understand why they're going with this version. I think he's a good actor. 
Um, again, it all comes down to the story and character. How is this character going to be written? And uh, it's exciting. I mean, I, 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 again, I like, actually, I like both Blue Beetles. I mean, I like the characters. So it's just interesting to me that this is the, this is who they're going to, uh, this is who they're going to be the next, this is the next DC character. And maybe it'll be a breakout character like Shazam, but I really wanted to see the Blue Beetle Booster Gold movie, the blue and the gold. (laughs) Because I, I love those characters. But, I mean, listen, uh, to, you know, give you a little bit of hope there in your, you know, sadness rainfall, Rob. Let me give you a little bit of sunshine. I mean, <laughs> couldn't the possibility, though, that if this comes out, and I think they're saying this is going to be an HBO Max movie, much like the Batgirl movie is going to be. But, I mean, if they come out this thing and it goes over really well with the fans, does that not increase the possibility of a Blue Beetle Booster Gold crossover at some point? Because because you do have to admit, the one thing, as fun as I thought it sounded doing a Booster Gold Blue Beetle crossover thing, the one problem with that is you are talking about doing a crossover with two fairly unknown characters. Now, I can hear people screaming at me, we know who Booster Gold is. People who don't read comic books have no idea who Booster Gold is. They know who Wonder Woman is. They know who Iron Man is. They know who Aquaman is. They know who Batman is. They know all these guys. Booster Gold and Blue Beetle to a lot of people are probably like, who, what? Are these kitchen cleaning products? I mean, they just don't know. So I always thought like trying to do a crossover of two relatively unknown characters might have been a little bit risky. But I think, Rob, if a Blue Beetle does well, it could l- create a yellow brick road that leads to the Silver City of of maybe a Booster Gold Blue Beetle crossover. I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, the, I, look, I'd love to see that. But the thing is, it's that care the this this blue beetle is not the blue beetle that's friends with booster gold. So, but I, I I think that doesn't mean you can't bring in another. It's a multiverse, John. (laughs) So yeah, look, I think whenever a character is successful, it's good for everybody because it, it shines more light on the character more people know about them. And um, I think it's great. You know, no, there's no downside. If it turns out to be great. That's true. And the question is for you guys. What do you make of this? Are you a fan of Cobra Kai? If so, what do you think about this casting? Maybe you don't watch Cobra Kai. What do you think about them finally getting a lead for Blue Beetle regardless? Whatever you guys think about this, jump on down to the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. Okay, guys. With all that now down and out of the way, let's move on over and start taking your live comments and questions. Once again, if you want to fire in a live comment or question be read on this show or in an upcoming companion video, simply use the tip link and also to support the show, of course, simply go down to the description of this video and click on that tip link or enter it in manually at www.streamelements.com slash movieblogtv slash tip. You'll be getting your comment or question read on one of our shows if it's appropriate for our show. And of course, you'll be supporting our channel at the same time. And all of us thank you guys so much for that support. All right. Let's not waste any more time and get on over to it. We're going to start up with the questions here with one from Ian Burke who writes, Hey, John, after the Suicide Squad, do you think that James Gunn should do something outside of the comic book realm? I know he's on for Guardians 3, but as a director slash writer, could he be typecast if he's not careful? Well, I mean, I don't think so, because even though he's been directing that stuff, he's also been very involved in other things. Like, remember, he was very involved, even though he wasn't the director, he was very involved with, and Rob, remember, they had his name on the promos for it, too, of uh, what's the the kid bad Superman, uh, the little kid who's a bad version of Superman. 
What was uh, what was that called oh, again, guys? Uh, 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 Brightburn. Brightburn, yes, Brightburn. So and Marcus Y and uh, Bleached Arena and Ellis Films all write in Brightburn in the live chat as well. Thank you, guys. So he was very involved with that. He also had that, you know, I can't remember the name of it, but Michael Rocker was in it. That kind of adult version of. Um, of like hunger games sort of thing where all these office workers it ends up their building is one big death trap and they all got to fight to the death i can't remember the name of that movie either but that one was kind of fun and he was involved with that i think his brother or one of his uh, cousins was it the belco experiment that's exactly what gun. it was thank you the belco experiment um that wasn't bad i think his like his cousin or something like that uh, was was the director of that but he was very involved with that and let's not forget like the russo brothers i mean they did four big comic book movies in a row and then they went out and did other things as well you know christopher nolan now granted christopher nolan jumped back and forth he did a batman movie then he did a different movie then he did another batman movie then he did a different movie then he did another batman movie so he mixed it up but i think right now he's kept himself diversified enough i i don't think right now james gunn is in any uh risk of you know, painting himself into a corner as a director that he can only do comic book movies. He had a long, successful track record, indie, granted, but he had a long, successful track record of making quality stuff before that. He's been involved with other things. I don't know, Rob, do you think James Gunn could possibly be at risk of kind of stereotyping himself as a director right now for only comic book movies? Uh, no, I, I think James Gunn could probably do just about anything that he wanted. I just think that, you know, his comedic sensibilities happen to lend themselves or actually his, his character and comedy lends themselves well to certain comic book approaches like guardians and like suicide squad. But I think if you asked, if you asked James Gunn to do a political thriller, I bet he could do that as well. He would probably use it with a lot of satire. I could yeah. see James Gunn making a Dr. Strange love or something. By the way, guys, suicide squad, go see it the moment you can see it and see it on the biggest screen possible. I had so much fun with this movie. All right, next up, we go to Min Tran who writes, just say Jungle Cruise fun movie. It has Jumanji vibe uh, minus the video game. Um, I Yeah, I, listen, I didn't love Jungle Cruise, but it's pretty good. I mean, in a thumbs up or thumbs down world, I am a thumbs up person for Jungle Cruise. I enjoyed it. It, it certainly had moments of fun. Some not so great stuff, some very questionable CGI, some kind of eye rolling stuff. But honestly, for the most part, the charm of Dwayne The Rock Johnson and Emily Blunt, their chemistry, it's a fun little adventure film. Overall, I thought the good outweighed the bad and I, I had a good time with it. All right, next up, Mintran also writes, uh, if the and if the and John Cena does fight each, you probably meant to say The Rock. If The Rock and John Cena uh, does meant do fight each other in a fast movie would like be awesome oh let me try this again if the and john cena does fight each other in a fast movie would like be awesome or stupid if the rock pull out the rock bottom and john cena pull out the attitude adjustment i think if look if by the way, and you're never going to see Dwayne Johnson in a Fast and the Furious movie again. He'll he'll do his spinoffs, Hobbs and Shaw, but The Rock has made it pretty clear he's not going to be in Fast and the Furious movies again. Him and Vin Diesel just do not get along. But if you did have Dwayne The Rock Johnson and John Cena in a Fast and the Furious movie together, and if they did have a fight, Rob, it would be, and I think this is a phrase that's overused, but it applies here. It would be a missed opportunity 
It would be a missed opportunity to not have The Rock pull out a rock bottom. Of course he's got to pull out a rock bottom. And of course you're going to have to have John Cena do the attitude adjustment. And I wouldn't be surprised, even if it would make no sense in the movie, because nothing makes sense in The Fast and the Furious anymore, that at some point maybe he's pretending he's swatting at a fly, but John Cena's got to do this. He's got to do this. Or he's got to drop a smoke bomb and in the midst of the smoke say, you can't see me. I mean, you have to, because not in any other movie franchise, but in a Fast and the Furious movie, you'd have to. I don't know, Rob, what do you think about that? Uh, I think probably you'd have to, yes. I, you know, the, I, it's funny because I think people would would really want to see that happen. Like, I know I would. So uh, the fact that it might not ever happen is kind of a sad story, John. Uh, yeah, it, it is. Kind of, but, but Hey, we could still see it in the DC universe. They're black Adam that's, and peacekeeper. Now that's true. That is, do you know what? That is very true. Although that wouldn't be much of a fight. <laughs> black Adam against peacekeeper is not much of a fight, but still, I mean, it could, it could happen on that level. All right. Next up, uh, we've got, uh, come on, Mark. Don't be stingy. Writes. Bert Kirshner is a stand-up comedian who was named Florida State Party Animal of the Year in 1997 and was the inspiration for Van Wilder. I did not know that. He has three stand-up specials on Netflix, and now Lionsgate has wrapped on his movie The Machine, directed by Peter uh, Antisio. I am unfamiliar with Bert and all of that. I, I'm not familiar with any of that at all, to be honest with you. Uh, by the way, Dragon10 sends in a super chat badge in the live chat. Thank you, Dragon10. Rob, are you familiar with Bert uh, Kresher? I, I, I'm, I'm sure I'm not pronouncing the name right, but are you familiar with this performer? I do not, not off the top of my head, not by name. I might have seen them, but I don't know them. It doesn't ring a bell right away. But that, you know what? That doesn't usually mean anything. There's a lot of performers that I'm like, oh, that person. I love that person. I don't know their names. All I don't right. know what that says about me. All right. Let's move on here. Um, do, 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 where are we at now? We are at James who writes, hey, John, how much money, in your opinion, will Bob Chapek have to burn before he invites the wrath of the shareholders? It's not just about money. It's about reputation, burnt bridges, broken relationships um, and basically you're standing in the industry. If he damages that enough, listen, removing a CEO is not a simple thing and it's, it's a big deal. Not to mention removing a CEO means you, it means admitting that you failed in appointing who your CEO is. It means admitting failure, which is why a lot of times you don't want to replace a CEO. So I don't know. It would, it would take something major. I mean, look, Rob, I said this yesterday, and I believe this. When a sports team hires a new coach, you got to give that coach more than one year. Even yeah. if that first season you lose every single game, you have to understand that it takes a little bit of time for that coach to come in, implement their culture, their their you know team culture and implement get the right personnel in place and you got to give them more than one season. I have hated the job Bob Chapek has done so far. I think he is a lousy because I used to celebrate that he was appointed the new CEO. Now I think it was a terrible mistake. But you got to give him more than a year. 
you got to give him, I think, minimum three years. Unless he does something so asinine, stupid that it puts the company at risk and they got to fire him for cause. I think minimum, you got to give him three years. Because I may hate the job he's doing now, but maybe if we give him a couple more years, he turns that around. I mean, I don't know. So as much as I don't like the job he's doing, I say you minimum have to give him three years. I don't like him. I don't like the job he's doing. But even I will stand up and say you have to give him at least three years to show what he wants to bring to Disney. And then if you need to make a move and change or, or whatever, Rob, I don't know, Rob, what do you think about that? Well, I, look, I tend to agree with you because, you know, people make fundamental changes and it's it, it takes time to see where those changes are going to wind up. However, I mean, Bob Iger building Disney over the course of decades uh, was undeniable. And I think that I think that Bob Chapek, the, the problem is <laughs> where Chapek came out of, uh, he was in home video and things like that it's it's uh, he had a lot different skill set than somebody like bob Iger did and chapek is very much more of a corporate man his talent relations weren't there whereas i mean bob uh, bob Iger was working with people like frank sinatra when he was an intern stuff like that so uh, they had a really different skill set I, I know that on the in the corporate structure bob chapek gets promoted and eventually just because of what he's done within the company, he gets to be where he's at. But does that mean he's the best person for the job? Mm. You know, a person is made up, their their leadership skill sets are made up of a lifetime of working. And just because you worked in certain places doesn't necessarily mean when you finally get to a certain place in your career where they have to promote you and there's nowhere else for you to go except into the leadership position, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a great fit. And I think that we've seen a lot of disruption at Disney and we've read a lot about it in the trade since JPEG took over. There's been a lot of disruption at Disney and it hasn't been great. And this is just, I think, the latest example of that, because something like this should never have happened. Yeah, so I agree. By the way, by the way, some very, very uh, disappointing news that I have to report to everybody here. Disappointing, disappointing. You know, we were just getting all excited that, you know, from the rap and screen rant, we're saying that uh, Lord of the Rings is 20 episodes. Uh, TV Guide has come out and they're saying, no, 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 uh, that that is not correct. It is going to be indeed an eight episode season. It's going to be eight episodes, which is more along the lines of what is traditional these days. At least it's not the damn Disney six episodes, but it is uh, TV Guide is saying, no, 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 it is eight episodes which wow then that's the waiting for a year for eight episodes but dude, it better be good it better be good but think about this too on a per hour basis on a per hour basis with that production budget and remember that didn't even count the hundreds of millions they had to spend on the rights just to get it this is ludicrously by far the most expensive television show ever made on a per hour basis. It's, it's going to be kind of, uh, I got so excited. Yeah. I, when I get my hopes up and I get so excited. Oh, I read that 20 episodes thing, Rob, you saw the smile on my face. Damn it. <laughs> Me too, John. Me too. I, you know what? 20 episodes really got my blood flowing. If you know what I'm saying? Ah, 
All right. I mean, look, I, w- I was going to be perfectly happy about eight episodes before. I just got all excited when I heard 20. Oh, well. Mr. Wolfgang puts it best in the live chat. God damn it. <laughs> yeah. And there we go. Okay. Anyway, let's get back on over to the, uh, to the questions here. Shall we? Uh, Min Tran writes, have you seen the trailer to Stephen Amell's new show heels? Yeah, I have. I watched the preview. I, I, I won't go into the full thing again. I talked about this at length on my companion video yesterday. Listen, I am forever going to be a Stephen Amell fan because he made my wife smile. And so once you do that, you're my good books forever. Um, but I, I got to admit, I'm only going to check it out because it's Stephen Amell. I have not been overly, overly thrilled with the previews or the trailers for Heels yet. But because I do have an absolute like uh, bias for Stephen Amell, and I will always be a big fan of his, I will definitely check it out. So here's hoping it's going to be good. Okay, next up. Uh, Min Tran writes... Uh, have you seen the teaser for the final season of Lucifer? Are you excited for the final season that will release on September 10th? I am ludicrously excited for Lucifer. You guys know that Lucifer is one of my, if not my favorite show on TV right now. Um, I love this show. I got so excited when they announced they were doing another season, super stoked for it. So yeah, I cannot wait, man. I, I love the, that show so damn much, so surprisingly, but so damn much. All right. Uh, next up. We've got uh, James Argenta writes, fun fact, during filming of Loki, Owen Wilson roomed with his brother Luke Wilson for a month when Luke was filming Stargirl since both shows were shot in Atlanta area. Uh, that kind of makes sense. I mean, they're yeah, brothers. Right. They're both in the same city. Why not? I mean, I've, I've always heard that those two have a really close relationship. So, yeah, why not? That sounds good. Uh, all right. Drew writes. <clears throat> Um, I just want to clear this up for many of us in the comments who have followed the Johnny, by the way, there's an H in Johnny, uh, Johnny Depp, Amber Heard case closely. John, have you personally reviewed uh, any of Johnny Depp's evidence, the audio recordings, or is your opinion based mostly off of headlines? Okay, let me address this quickly. You, Drew, are the one who has only gone off what your selective, predetermined bias wants you to listen to. I have read the court documents. Now, I wasn't in the court, though. And by court documents, I mean what I did was I read the judge's ruling. I I read the full judge's ruling from the court case. Here's where it gets really frustrating for me. This doesn't just apply to movie fans. It applies to people in general. Confirmation bias is absolutely real. People have their biased opinion to start with, and then they only listen to the things that enforces their pre-existing bias opinion. And don't point fingers because we're all susceptible to it. We've all done it. We've all done it. What people don't seem to ever want to admit, I don't care what side of the Amber Heard, Johnny Depp situation you're on. Quite frankly, I don't give a shit about either of them. I think they're both very talented performers. I like their work in movies, um, all that kind of stuff. But I don't have a dog in that hunt. I don't give two flying shits about Johnny Depp. I don't give two flying shits about Amber Heard. But... I was not there, nor was I in the courtroom for weeks and weeks and weeks when evidence, testimony, legal experts, all that kind of stuff was all being discussed, talked about, contemplated, broke down and analyzed. I wasn't in the courtroom. Were you? Nope. So what do I have to rely on? I have to rely on the findings of the court. Warner Brothers did their own internal investigation as well. They have a lot of money tied up in Johnny Depp. But their internal investigation suggested one thing, 
and the court sifting through all the evidence, not the little cherry picked little audio recordings, the cherry picked this and cherry picked that only listening to what you want to hear. They went through everything and gave everything context and all that kind of stuff. And their determination in court, the people who had all the evidence and heard all the testimony and were given all the context, they put out a statement. The court ruled that Johnny Depp, the accusations against Johnny Depp were, in their words, true. The accusations against Johnny Depp were substantially true, substantively true. Now, look, I still wasn't there. But I take the word of a court that saw all the evidence and heard all the testimony and were given all the context of every little detail than I do about, I researched on the Googles. I, I will take that every day of the week. Now, I've also been very clear to point out that, hey, this isn't done either. There's still an American court case coming up. And I have said, and I still believe, that the, our perception of this whole situation can change very drastically once the American case happens. Because what happens if in the American lawsuit that they find the other way? What if they find against Amber Heard in the American lawsuit? Well, then that makes it a very interesting discussion to have because you got one court ruling one way, one court ruling another. So we'll have to see where that goes. But until that happens, and I will reassess my own personal opinion once more new true information is presented, but until that happens, what have we got? We are left with Warner Brothers did their own internal investigation, found one thing, and a court of law heard testimony, reviewed evidence, got context, and they ruled one way as well. So as an intelligent human being, I recognize that I wasn't there, that I wasn't a part of all that. And so I go, yeah. And I just find it funny, Rob, because you know what would have happened if that court in the UK had ruled against Amber Heard, the Amber Heard fans would have gone, well, the court is just corrupt. The court was bought off. That's exactly what the Amber Heard fans would have done but they ruled against Johnny Depp. So what did the Johnny Depp fans do? The court is corrupt. The court was bought off. The court was biased. And both sides would did it. But you know for a fact that if the court had ruled against Amber Heard, the Johnny Depp fans would have said, yes, justice, the court system, the court system. But because it ruled against them, they immediately jump say, well, the court was bought off and the court was biased. Look, we'll see what happens. It's still open. But frankly, all you people who don't know Johnny Depp or Amber Heard giving a shit about this, okay, I don't give a shit. I think it's interesting. It does affect the movies we're seeing, so I think it's worth talking about. But I don't get why people get so emotionally invested in this. I just don't. They weren't there. I wasn't there. I don't give a shit. If they come out in the American lawsuit and say Amber Heard was 100% in the wrong, okay, well, then we'll discuss that. Cool. But until then... I just go by what the, the what a legal court found, and that's, I think, all we have to go on for, for now. For now. But it's still an unfolding situation. Rob, how do you address this? I, I have no idea what any of this has to do with Aquaman 2. You know, a domestic dispute between f formerly married partners that gets acrimonious happens every day in courtrooms across the world. Um, you know, and the idea that somehow what's going on in someone's personal life in terms of their marriage and all that, what does that have to do with them filming a movie? I mean, you know, 
yeah. So again, we'll see what happens. We'll 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 see what happens. All right. Next up, um, Alex Detman writes, "Hey John, uh, so just as I begin to have a little gleam of hope for this Predator Skull film, I get a nice middle finger reading that it will be directly released to Hulu. I know that you have always said that there is a lack of confidence in the film if released." Um, to streaming platform and foregoing a theatrical release, or am I looking too much into it? To be honest, I dig the essential plot of this being uh, the Predator's first hunt on Earth and being helmed by a good director, but Shane Black was ideal and it effed us. <laughs> yeah, it kind of did. Anyway, um, let's note, there is a difference though, Rob. There's a difference between, like, let's take that uh, Cloverfield movie that Paramount did uh, that was in space. I can't remember what they called it, right? But that one in space. It was shot as the God particle. Yeah, And then that's it was right. what, the Cloverfield Paradox? Or yeah, so, yes, Cloverfield Paradox. That's right. There's a difference between that situation where it was conceived of, produced, and made to be a theatrical release movie. And then at the last minute, they were like, this movie's shit. We, let's just ditch it off to Netflix. <laughs> and there's a difference between that and a project that is conceived of by a studio to say, hey, we need some good original content for Hulu. Well, let's do Predator. Let's take this project and let's... So it, it seems that this Predator project was initially conceived of and has been produced as a vehicle for their Hulu streaming service. And so that doesn't mean it's going to be good, but it doesn't automatically go, it's going to be bad. So yeah, I would I naturally assume the worst when it's a movie that was made for the theaters and then it gets pawned off onto a streaming service as opposed to a movie that right from its inception was meant to be designed and made as a vehicle for a streaming service. I see them as two different things. So we'll see how that turns out. I don't know Rob, what what do you think about that? Well, I, I, I think we have to wait and see how it turns out as well. I mean, jury's kind of still out on these things. You know, we're, we're, we're in a whole new realm here. And I'm always curious to see where is it all going to, where is it going to, where is it going to go? Yeah. All right. Next up, uh, we've got, that was Alex. Uh, George writes, hey, John and Rob. I am seeking advice. I am 25 and at a crossroads in my life. I have always had a grand love for everything movies, TV, and video games. I want to do something involving that, but I feel like maybe my time has passed. What do you guys recommend? Well, this came up the other day, too. Yeah. Um, look, the reality is this. I, I, I Look, I'm not a therapist, so I can tell you what to do. I can only tell you my stuff. I never got involved in the film industry in any way, shape, or form until I was in my 30s. I started the movie blog when I was in my 30s. I, I So, yeah, what does that tell you? You're 25. You still got like a seven-year head start on me. I, You know, Rob, when we talked about it the other day, I, I had somebody write into me and said, dude, I'm 55 years old. I just went back to school. I went back to school. I can't, I can't remember what it was they were studying, but they said, I'm 55 years old and I just went back to school because I always had this dream of doing this for a career and I've decided I still got plenty of time. I'm going to go and pursue that. Awesome. That is awesome. So yeah, dude, you're 25. Plenty of time, man. Plenty of time. I mean, it all depends. There's a lot of very, very different careers. There's not just the movie industry. What do you want to do? Do you want to be a designer? Do you want to be a writer? 
Do you want right. to be a set uh, a set con uh, construction person? Do you want to be work in entertainment legal? Do you want to work in contracts? Do you want to work as an actor? Do you want to work as a film composer? I mean, these are vastly, vastly different things. So it all depends on what you want to do. So I would say, dude, you are well young enough to make an attempt at something. I don't know, Rob, how, how would you respond to him? I, just like you said, I mean, the, the thing is, though, it's a little like, John, you were pointing out, there's specialization. I mean, saying you want to work in movies, well, what does that mean? You know, and what what aspect of the film business interests you? Same with video games. I mean, maybe you want to direct motion capture for video games. I, I don't know. They're, the, these are such, they're, they're so, both in the video game industry and motion pictures and television, there's just about every walk of life that exists in in the world is somehow utilized in both the video game and the motion picture business. And you have to figure out like what area of the motion picture business interests you. And I think specialization is the key, you know, figure out something that you like and specialize in that. All right. Next up, we got Meg, Ming, Ming Tran who writes, if you ignore the last two seasons of Supernatural, which you can't, uh, which version of the almighty do you prefer? Robert Benedict, who of course played Chuck in Supernatural or Dennis Haysbert, who plays God in uh, Lucifer. I listen. I loved the Chuck character until the final two seasons. The final two seasons of Supernatural, they completely ruined the Chuck character. But I loved the Chuck character in Supernatural, who is God. Uh, he just goes by the name of Chuck in Supernatural. Um, but, dude, I loved Anus Haysbert's portrayal of God. I really did. I thought he was awesome. It's a very different take on God than the one they did in Supernatural, but I'm going to go with the one uh, that Dennis uh, Haysbert did. I, I really did like that one. All right. Stuart writes, hope you and Rob are doing well. Thank you so much. Love the show and watch every week. Will Shang-Chi be on Disney Plus premiere if the Delta variant gets worse? Plus, with the lawsuit from Scarlett Johansson, would they dare put it on Disney Plus? Your thoughts. Uh, well, we, we kind of talked about this the other day, Rob, that I, I don't know. This lawsuit is going to make it very precarious for them to put Shang-Chi on Disney Plus right now. It's because they're going to have to wait to see how this kind of shakes out. Unless, of course, they do what they should have done with Scarlett Johansson. Go in advance to all the players and stakeholders involved with Shang-Chi and say, look, we want to move this thing to Disney Plus. What can we do with you guys right now to make us doing that move right by you? And then do that in advance, and then you're totally clear. Then you're totally free and clear to go. So I, I, I don't know, man. I don't know. You know, you and I talked a lot the other day, Rob, about with the variant Clifford the Big Red Dog just got pushed. Could they do that with Shang-Chi? I mean, it's kind of last minute. But it's possible they could, but because of the lawsuit, I think it would just really force them to go and do what they should have done with Scarlett Johansson before making that move. But I think what you won't see them do, Rob, is just try to pull a fast one on the Shang-Chi players the way they did on Scarlett Johansson. I don't know, Rob, what do you think about that? No, I, I completely agree with you. If they're gonna if they're gonna decide to move it over to Disney Plus, there's gonna be a whole lot of explaining to do, Lucy. Uh, they're gonna have to they're gonna have to do a lot of of rejiggering those contracts and figuring out how can we move forward where everybody's happy because they don't want a talent revolt. I mean, the thing about Shang Chi is, you know, it's the first uh, 
Asian superhero in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. There's a lot of people who have eyeballs on this movie. It's a pretty unknown character as far as the general public is going uh, concerned, even though he has been an Avenger. So there's a lot riding on this film. And um, I, I think they're not going to want any kind of controversy to to surround it. So we'll see. All right, next up, we got Garden Variety Vagabond, who writes one of two. John, I was looking forward to The Green Knight. I'm very excited for that, but spent most of it begging for it to end. I have never disagreed so much with the critic rating. Uh, uh, it, on one hand, spends most of its time on his journey, which is never given, but at least one element comes from interpretations and studies, St. Winfred, uh, to fill in the gaps. I tend not to mind racial swapping, but I felt it works here. I don't feel it works here, though Dev Patel was excellent. Too many elements were not from the story, and it was way too dirge-like thoughts. Well, listen, all I can say, Garden Variety, is that it's not just the critic ratings. I mean, every you guys have been watching the show. Everybody who's written into me about Green Knight has absolutely loved it, and some people calling it the best film they've ever seen. I am not one of them because I haven't seen the film yet. Damn it. Uh, I've been waiting to watch this film for well over a year uh, and I still haven't seen it yet. I haven't had the opportunity to get to the theater to watch it. I still can't do it tonight and I can't do it tomorrow night and I can't do it Wednesday night either. Ah, anyway, uh, but I will get out to watch the green night, but yeah, it, it is. But listen, all film is subjective. So no matter how many people write into me and say they think it's the greatest movie ever, there's going to be people who watch it and don't have the same experience. And you clearly did not have the same experience. And I'm glad you're sharing your thoughts on that because that's important. It's important to express the other side of it as well. So again, all I've heard from people is how much they love it. Uh, I can't say that because I haven't seen it. But uh, yeah, uh, there it is. All right, next up. And last one we'll do with Rob here. Um, Nosferatu writes, Bob Iger must be having the worst year of his life. Oh, dude, I can only Rob, imagine Bob Iger. I, and, and I can only on a very, very small level kind of relate a little bit because, you know, I left Collider and I'm, I know everybody wants me to dish dirt on individual people and I will never do that. But when I left Collider, it was so difficult for me. Like some people thought and would write into me say, John, you must feel good seeing their numbers drop and you must feel good seeing everything falling apart. And are you kidding me? Dude, I, starting with AMC, I had spent years of my life building that thing and piece by piece putting this thing together and building it to the point that we had it at to then leave and have to sit here over in my own place and watch this steady destruction and this steady falling apart and this steady implosion of this thing I had spent years building and having to sit back from a distance and just watch it fall apart. It was awful. And Rob, you know that because I confided in you a bunch. Yes. Like I would never once was I happy. It's like, ha, 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 look, this show's losing their numbers. And ha, ha, no, I was miserable and I was beside myself and I never talked about it on the show. I never talked about it live. I never talked about it on the show, but I was miserable. I can only imagine how Bob Iger must feel right now. Bob Iger has spent so many years building Disney to being the most powerful, most respected most everything entertainment company in the world. 
And in the span of one year since he handed over that CEO throne to Bob Chapek, they're in the news all the time for all the wrong reasons. And I can just imagine Iger sitting at home with his perfect freaking hair and his square freaking jaw and his perfect freaking tan and sitting there just going, oh, what the hell? Like, I can only imagine the frustration that guy must be feeling right now. I don't, I don't know, Rob. What do, you, what do you think Iger's going through right now? Well, if you've ever seen his devastatingly intelligent and beautiful wife, you know, things aren't that bad at home for Bob. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I think that um, you're right. I, I mean, you want to leave a legacy. You want to leave. And and despite COVID, uh, I mean, this is a talent relations issue. Bob Iger was a master of talent relations. Nothing like this ever would have happened, I think, under his watch. This would have been something that they never, would have dealt with. Never he would have, have happened under his watch. He would have got out in front of this and he would have been like, yo, let's take care of this now. And um uh, it, it is sort of unfortunate. And, you know, it really goes to show you that one of the things I think is weird in our society is, is just because people have what appears on paper to be a good pedigree, it really doesn't have any indication on what their actual job performance is going to be. And that's sort of been a truism of life. And yet in the corporate world, they're very, they're very uh, wrapped up in in people's what, what they can show on a spreadsheet or show to their investors. Here's what we here's what we've got, but does that really translate into the leadership qualities that you need to lead a company like Disney? And I think we're seeing that. Well, perhaps not. So I'm with you. I don't. Bob Iger can't be can't be digging this, John. Can't be digging it. No. Can't can't be digging it at all. Anyway, listen, Rob, I know we've kept you a bit overtime here. Thanks for being here again today, man. And we'll, of course, talk to you again tomorrow. But in the meantime, where can people follow you and your greatness online? Well, you can find me on Instagram at Robert Meyer Burnett. Find me on Twitter at Burnett RM or find me on my own YouTube channel, The Burnett Work, ranting about Star Trek. <laughs> all right. Thanks a lot for being here again, Rob. We'll talk to you again tomorrow. Have a good one. All right, man. Ladies and gentlemen, the one and the only, the great... Mr. Robert Meyer Burnett. Uh, and of course, we'll have him back here on the show again tomorrow. But for now, we've still got some time left here. Let's keep going through your questions, shall we? We're going to pick things up here with Hardcore Curtsy, who writes, I like that username. Maybe the best part about movies is when enough reality grounds things that the hard-to-believe parts of the film that it is built upon make it feel as though the, wor the word impossible is a little less necessary to include in the dictionary. Dude, that is beautifully put. That's beautifully put. That, that's basically kind of my um, uh, treats, if you will, about the, what Fast 9 became. Like, if you want to have the fantastical within the mundane, you have to est establish some credibility of reality. And then when you do that, the fantastical seems more plausible, right? As opposed to like a Fast 9, which was just eye-rollingly stupid from the very first frame. And I say that as a Fast and the Furious fan. You guys know I have really been on board the Fast and the Furious franchise ever since at least episode 4. So 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. I've been all on board for Fast and the Furious. But man, 9, no pun intended, drove it right off the cliff. I love the way you put that, dude. Well said. All right, next up. Scrooge McDuck. Writes one of three. 
Here's how I'd maximize box office slash streaming revenue. I'd like to know your opinion. Theatrical only, minimum 60 days. Then initial uh, uh, PVOD, $20 to $30 to rent or buy. And Disney Plus, $10 to $20 rent or buy. Disney Plus is cheaper to still drive subs. Honestly, with all the Marvel, Star Wars shows, I don't think the movies themselves drive subs. If you don't pay extra, you can wait at least six months to see it on Disney Plus for free. Finally, bring back the vault. Uh, if you rent slash wait till free, it goes into the vault at some point. Buy it and it will be on your account anytime. Thoughts? If you're the boss, how would you do it? Well, listen, first of all, I think the vault, honestly, was something that had to go. The vault had to go. It just, the vault always just frustrated fans, I think, more than anything else. So I, I would honestly keep the vault gone away. But what you just proposed has been very similar to what the traditional structure has been and clearly is the way for them to make the most profits. Put the movie out on an exclusive theatrical window. Make your hundreds of millions of dollars there. Then, after a 45-day theatrical window, 60-day theatrical window, it used to be 90 days, now I think it's 45 is the norm. But after the theatrical window, however long that window is, then sell it on PVOD so people can just watch it at home if they want for 20 to 30 to whatever dollars. Then you're making money there. So you got the money from the theaters in hundreds of millions, then you get money from PVOD, and then... You, as a streaming service, enjoy the benefits of putting it then on your streaming service, which will drive subscribers. It's a best of all worlds. The Disney premium streaming strategy, a Deadline did a great article on this, but the streaming strategy cuts out two essential levels of revenue generating. And it's costing them hundreds of millions of dollars in losses. And... It's, it's that thing of you can have the best of both worlds, have the theatrical and then have your home viewing experience. Just do them in an order where people who love the theatrical experience still have the theatrical experience and you make hundreds of millions of dollars and then release it on PVOD later. So people who just want to stay home and watch it at home can do that later and pay their 20 or $30 for it. And you as the studio make money from that. And then you put it on your streaming service for free, which will generate income as people come and subscribe to your channel because you have your growing library. It is a tried, true, tested, money-making process that, again, the articles at Deadline pointed out, it's, it's really the way they should be doing things. But, I, I mean, look, they're going to experiment with things in the Sierra Go. But basically, Scrooge, I, I do like your process. I do like your process. All right, next up. Um, Scrooge McDuck Jr. writes, I notice you often mention someone is a good Canadian kid, but good doesn't exist without the bad. So who are the bad Canadian kids you never seem to want to talk about? I Look, when I mention, obviously, when I mention a good Canadian kid, that's just... You know, if they're, they're Canadian kids, so they're a good Canadian kid. There are no bad Canadian kids uh, in general, the way I mean it, the way I interpret it at any rate. All right. David 27 writes, hey, John, I'm really excited for Shang-Chi and the trailer has been amazing. This feels like the first movie of phase four. I know Black Widow was technically the first movie of phase four, but it felt like a phase three movie. Still really good movie, by the way, though. Yeah, I, I liked Black Widow. I did. I don't think it's one of the better Marvel films. I don't, but I still liked it. Um, I, I thought the villains were terrible, but I thought the good outweighed the bad, and I thought it was good. But as far as 
well, wait a minute. Is it a phase three movie or is it a phase four movie? Or It doesn't matter. I mean, the phases are really meaningless. They're arbitrary um, uh, delineators that we just kind of make up to kind of mentally organize where a film is. But really, ultimately, it doesn't matter. It really makes no difference if they call Black Widow the first phase four movie or if they call Black Widow the final phase three movie. It really makes no difference. So I don't normally really pay any attention to the phases at all. I mean, again, they're just arbitrary, random things that they put in place that helps us sort of organize in our heads where a movie happens in their timeline per se. But ultimately, I don't really pay much attention to it. I don't pay much attention to the whole phase discussion very much. All right, next up, David 27 writes, Hey, John, something I've been thinking about for a couple of weeks, and I was wondering what your thoughts on it. Do you think the reason the Eternals are now getting involved uh, because of the Loki finale and the multiverse because they didn't get involved? I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, A lot of like, remember, in the Eternals trailer, they mentioned we've never interfered with human progression. We've never interfered with humanity. We've lived here. We've lived among them, but we've never interfered. So. The big question, obviously, from that trailer became, well, what's the thing that has now motivated them to get involved? I highly doubt it's the Loki thing. I don't think they're going to basically build the entire premise of this big Eternals movie based on the idea that you have to have watched this Disney Plus show. I don't think they do that. I don't think... Um. I don't think the director would have gotten involved with this movie if they if they thought that was it. So I don't think that'll be it. It's not impossible. And it might be something remotely connected to it, but I don't think, no, I, I don't think the events of Loki is what causes, is what becomes the pivotal spark event that gets the Eternals involved. So I don't think that's going to be it. Uh, but hey, it's still possible. But I personally, I think it's going to be something else. We will see. All right, next up. Uh, David27 also writes, they didn't get involved in Endgame, and that was a huge event in the universe. Uh, you would think that they would show up during the whole Infinity Saga. What are your thoughts? I, again, we don't know. We're going to have to wait and find out. I mean, for all we know, they may look at... Look, I believe we're going to see a young Thanos in Eternals. Like, it'll, it'll probably be in a flashback scene or something like that. I think we're going to see a young Thanos. But they probably even look at Thanos as like, that. Eh, not something that concerns us. I, Again, I don't know. But until we get more information about the Eternals, it's kind of pointless to speculate on my part. So I don't know. We're just going to have to wait till we get more information on that, David. All right. Uh, next up, NGF Mike writes, Hey, John, and whoever is there also, and you just missed Rob, unfortunately. I just want to say how happy I was when you spoke about it never being too late in life to start something. I turned 30 this year, and just a week ago, I enrolled in film production at my local community college, uh, part two. And I was nervous to start this journey because of my age. But hearing your words just made me feel so much better about my decision. Thank you for helping me to see that it really is never too late to pursue your dream. And I hope others are inspired. Yeah. Like I said, and first of all, NGF, good for you, man. That is awesome that you're actually getting off your ass. This is the hardest part for all of us is to just get off our ass and start the journey. It is never too late to do it. And very few people, no matter how young or how old they are, just never do that part. And you did. And that's awesome. But yeah, like I said, I got a message from somebody who was like 55. 
and did it. And it's like, that's great. That is great. Because guess what? They're going to be 56, 57. Well, they're probably going to be 57, 58. And they're going to be doing what they've always wanted to do by the time they're 57 or 58. And that's great. It is never too late to do what you love. It is never too late to do what you love. I mean, my dad was in his 60s when he started this little side business. My dad was in his 60s when he decided to start this side business. And it did very well for him, by the way. Very well. Well enough that I actually considered, I'm not, I never told my dad this and I'll deny it. If you, if you ever, uh, if anybody ever brings it up to him, I know my mom is watching this show. So mom, if you ever say this to dad, I'll totally deny it. But I mean, my dad started doing so well with this little side business of his, I had considered, I had considered telling my dad, listen, I will quit everything I'm doing in the United States and I will come home. And I will work with you. Part of that motivation was also because I just, I'm still daddy's boy. I mean, I, I, you know, it's, it doesn't matter how old you get. Waxing philosophical for a second. It, I learn more and more as I get older. It doesn't matter how old you get or how old your parents get. I find for me, there is still no affirmation I want more than that of my dad and my mom. I, I, I just, it's true. There is still no affirmation I want more in the world than I do for my mom and my dad. Which is weird because they would never know that. I don't think they would ever know that. But I could get emails from 10,000 people saying, Oh, they watched something that I did and they loved it. And that's, that's great. And that's special to me, but to hear something from your parent, even as an adult, your parents saying you did a good job or that they love something that you did. Um, there's nothing more affirming than that to me still. It's weird. So anyway, uh, I'm getting sidetracked here a bit, but when my dad was starting the side business. I had honestly thought about giving up everything I was doing in the States and just say, dad, how about, look, there's certain skills I can bring to the table, but certain things I would need to learn. But what would you think about me just coming home and I'll, I'll work with you. I'll, I'll, I'll put in the time on your business that you don't have the time for because he had another job and blah, blah, blah. I actually thought about doing that. I never talked to him about it. I never brought it up. I never suggested it, but it was something that, uh, it is something that I thought about doing, but again, just to go to your point NGF, you're never too late to try something new. It's never too late to try something new. I still listen. I'm not kidding. Honestly, every once in a while, I will still pick up the UCLA, you know, program guide and look at their film programs. And I've often considered still going back to school and taking more courses on like the business side of entertainment and stuff like that. I still do that. So good on you, NGF. Good on you for doing that. All right. Sorry, guys. I got sidetracked there a little bit. Let's keep going here, shall we? Uh, next up, Raymond Reddington writes, Hey, John, do you think the spreading of the Delta variant will lead to movie studios starting to delay their movies again? We spoke about that on the John Campus Show yesterday. I hope, 
I so hope it doesn't. The vaccines are proven to work uh, against Delta, and I think everybody is worrying about it too much. Well, I mean, of course, the problem, though, Raymond, is while the vaccines are proven to work, there are still too many people that have refused to get vaccinated. So what are you going to do? It it doesn't matter how effective. Look, I'll say something here, too. To like to my more conservative friends, you do realize I put this up on Twitter the other day because this was about this was written about in Forbes the other day and I have it. You do realize Donald Trump himself is vaccinated, right? Like Donald Trump was one of the first people to get vaccinated. Donald Trump said the vaccines are going to save the world. So, I, I mean, it shouldn't be a political thing. This should not be a political thing. Even Donald Trump got vaccinated. So I, I I don't know. It's it's crazy. So ultimately, Raymond, they're going to have to make these decisions. The studios are going to have to make these decisions, not based on whether or not the vaccine is safe and effective, which science has proved that it is. It's they got to make decisions about all the people who aren't getting vaccinated. And because of that, the numbers are spiking and people, the hospitalizations are going up. Hospitals are getting overcrowded in a lot of states again. And it's tough. So right now, I think it's a coin toss. I said yesterday, and I still believe today, that it is a virtual coin toss, 50-50, that Shang-Chi is actually going to release when it's supposed to release. So I'm not saying it is. I'm not saying it isn't. To me, I still, right now, I think it's a complete uh, coin toss. I think it's a complete coin toss. All right, next up. Thor, but not complaining, writes. I love that username. Writes, well, I finally finished watching Lord of the Rings for the first time, and you were right. Return of the King became my favorite of the three and the soundtrack for Sauron's defeat sent chills all over my body. Uh, Here's to the Amazon series and whatever they bring. Yeah, it's... Look, I've gone on, Thor, I've gone on many times about the absolute magic, not just of Lord of the Rings as a whole, but of Return of the King specifically. Lord of the Rings Return of the King specifically is so freaking magic. I mean, honestly, I sometimes wonder, what was the best completion of the trilogy? Return of the Jedi or Return of the King? Because they're both so bloody perfect. Uh, And Return of the Jedi is my favorite of the Star Wars movies. Return of the King is my favorite of the Lord of the Rings films. They're just all so great, though, man. They're just all so great. Uh, All right, next up. Uh, let's see here. Some dude writes, I'm beginning to think that the buzz surrounding the no way home trailer is pretty comparable to the buzz. Sony would have gotten if it did release one, not even remotely, um, begs the question, say Sony releases no trailer for it ever. How much does it make opening weekend? Drastically less. Listen, this came out. I remember there used to be a lot of discussions going on about Endgame, and, you know, some people saying Endgame doesn't even have to put out any trailers. Well, that shows that you have a basic fundamental misunderstanding about how the world works. Yeah. A lot of us are buzzing in our little 5% circles. A lot of us are buzzing about Spider-Man No Way Home (coughs) with the lack of a trailer. But what we always forget is we are 5%. We're 5%. The trailers are not about the 5% who are already going to go see that movie no matter what. Trailers are about the 95% that are more casual filmgoers. Some may go see it if they just see there's a new Spider-Man movie, but the vast majority of average filmgoers 
need to see a trailer to get excited. And they need to get excited to be motivated to plop down money and plan an evening to go to the theater and watch a movie. And so, yeah, it's very popular in our little 5% circles to hear the phrase, they don't even need trailers for that movie. Yes, they do. It is the difference, as Kevin Feige once said, it is the difference between a movie making a billion dollars and making $1.4 billion. It is a difference between a movie losing money and a movie making money. And yes, they absolutely do need to have a marketing campaign for Spider-Man No Way Home. No matter what overzealous fanboy you hear saying in whatever chat that they don't even need to make a trailer for Spider-Man No Way. Yes, they do. They absolutely do. And that is why the studios will spend tens and hundreds of millions of dollars sometimes on their marketing campaigns. They're not dumb. Sometimes they're dumb. But generally, the marketing experts, they're not dumb. They're willing to spend that money because they know there is a direct correlation between how they market the film and how many butts they get put in the seats. So yes, absolutely, a thousand percent. Just because me and you and a few other people in our 5% circles would go to see Spider-Man no matter what, they need to put out trailers. They need a marketing campaign. They need to mount that campaign and get the 95% motivated to want to go out and see the movie. And so, uh, yeah, that's kind of uh, my take on that. Anyway, thanks for writing that in some, dude. Good question, man. Uh, Let's see. Next up, we've got Joey, who writes one of two. My dad and I went to go see Jungle Cruise in IMAX on Friday, and we both really enjoyed it. Good on you, man. Uh, It felt like the first Pirates of the Caribbean and Indiana Jones mixed together. Emily Blunt and Dwayne Johnson were the best part of the movie. Um, But what made it even better was before the movie started, they showed the Dune, Eternals, Shang-Chi, and Top Gun 2 trailers in IMAX. And oh my God, it was so beautiful. I think I started to cry a little bit because of how amazing it was. I'll tell you what, dude. It was actually pretty cool sitting in a movie theater and watching like the top. I think I told the story the other day that I was in a movie theater the other day. And one of the trailers that was coming up was the Top Gun trailer. And the moment that dong, but that first gong, we have that bong. Everybody recognized it immediately. Everybody knew that gong was Top Gun. And I didn't realize how excited people would get in the theaters. I thought maybe it was a little bit too little too late for Top Gun, but man, when that trailer started, that audience got excited. That audience got excited. Um, It's, yeah, it was so great to see. It was so great to see. Anyway, I'm glad you were able to enjoy those trailers, man. All right, next up, we've got Andy Hong who writes, A great man by the name of John Campia once said, bring on the filthy. However, a legendary man by the name of Dominic Toretto told us, bring on the family, bring on the family. That is the big thing about Toretto. Of course, everything is powered by the infinity, the seventh infinity stone, by the way, which is family. All right. Andy Hong also writes, um, let's see one of four. Hi, John. I'm a big longtime fan of Supernatural. Me too. I've been watching it for half my life. However, I'm not remotely excited for a Supernatural prequel about John and Mary as we know very well what happens to them. Eh, true. 
But everybody knows what knew what was going to happen to the Titanic and Titanic, but it still went on to win tons of Academy Awards and become the number one box office film of all time for a lot of years. It was pretty great. Anyway, uh, as we all know very well what happens to them. I also can't imagine most of the Supernatural family feeling okay either, uh, since half of them hate John for being abusive and most of them hate Mary for being neglectful. Add to that, Supernatural tried to tried two spinoffs before and they led nowhere. And I think this is where the, where the fan base, including me, realized that we only care about watching Sam and Dean. Most of all, when I think about the bigger narrative Supernatural, this prequel about John and Mary is nothing more than a joke to Chuck because John and Mary lead down lead down to Sam and Dean. Any impact or stake that this prequel would try to display has no meaning and is only there to tickle Chuck's pickle. In fact, I have a hard time looking at older seasons of Supernatural as great as they were because in the back of my mind, I just know that Chuck is put pulling the strings for his own joy and fun. I think, see, here's the problem though, Andy. And like, first of all, let me say, I am not completely on board and super excited for a Supernatural spinoff, the John and Mary. For those of you who don't know, um, Jensen Ackles is executive producing a supernatural spinoff series. That's going to be a prequel that basically follows Sam and Dean's mom and dad, which we did get to see a bunch of that in the show itself. Now I'm not big on prequel material in general. There are some exceptions, but in general, I'm not kind of big on prequel material, but that being said, I'm not super excited for this either. But that doesn't mean they don't have a great take. Like I said, okay, they make a Titanic movie. We all know what happens to Titanic. Titanic is called the unsinkable ship, and yet on its maiden voyage, it hits an iceberg, and it sinks to the bottom of the ocean, killing a lot of people. We know that's where it's going, so we know what's going to happen to all these people on the boat. But it's the story. It's the journey that it takes us on, right? That's kind of the key thing. I just look at like, uh, I don't know, Bohemian Rhapsody. We know what happens to Freddie Mercury. We know the story of Queen. All you got to do is just look up a, a Wikipedia article and you know the story of Queen. But we still went to that movie and we loved it because of the journey that it takes us on. It's the journey, not the destination. And if this supernatural show can give us a fresh new take with some information that Sam and Dean didn't know, and they give us a great story and a great journey of John and Mary, taking us to where we eventually know it ultimately goes, it can be very worthwhile. Again, I'm not pretending that I'm excited about it. I'm not. But I'm also cognitive of the fact that there is potential there. There is potential. So, you know, let's kind of see how uh, it turns out. All right, guys, tell you what, let's go a little bit over time today. We're at the end of our regular runtime, but let's go a little bit over time if you guys will indulge. Well, not much. Let's just go a few minutes longer here. All right, next up, we're going to go to Andy Hong, who writes, With the Suicide Squad coming out this week, I bet that Rick Flagg and Harley Quinn are going to have some extracurricular activities with each other apart from the team. You know, they're going to do the dirty and bring on the filthy. Well, I know the answer to that, Andy, because I've seen the movie. But I cannot tell you what the answer to that is. Because I don't want to spoil anything for anybody. So I'm not going to spoil it. But uh, I I will just say, okay, Andy, that's an interesting theory you have. But again, 
I'm not going to say, uh, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to say anything. Okay, next up. Uh, let's see here. Russell Amador writes, Hey, John, as a non-movie critic myself, all I ask for is a good time and to be entertained with a movie. Nothing more, nothing less. Guess what? That's what most movie critics want too. Most movie critics, despite what the false narratives are that a lot of people try to spin, most movie critics just want to have a good time at the movies, man. Uh, and I say that as somebody who does some film criticism myself, and I say that knowing personally a lot of film critics. That's all they want, too. They just want it. Look, film critics, most film critics understand that movies are experiential events. They're meant to give you an experience. And all a movie fan and all most film critics want is just to be given a good experience. But sometimes a movie gives a good experience to some people and not a good experience to others. That's why movies are subjective. Anyway, let's keep reading here. All I want is for a good time and to be entertained with a movie, nothing more, nothing less. Are there certain boxes that you're looking for when you see a movie since the fan base looks uh, to you for your honest movie review? No, every movie is a totally different thing, right? What I look, here are some boxes and I don't mean these boxes replace the experience. I mean, in order to get the experience, you kind of do need these boxes. Number one, you need great characters. You need characters that I, I need there to be characters on the screen that I find interesting, that I find engaged with, that I like um, just seeing um, who they are. And I just like being around them virtually, right? That's one of the problems with Snake Eyes. Snake Eyes, Snake Eyes, the character, was just a big asshole. I hated that character. The character was a jerk. I wanted him to die. I wanted Storm Shadow to kill him. So in, in order to have that great experience, I think the primary thing you need to have is great characters, which obviously comes from the writing. Then it depends on what your movie wants to be. If your movie is a horror, well, you need to have scares. You need to feel fear at some point or the creeps, right? You don't need that from a comedy. You don't need that from a period piece. But if you're a horror, you got to deliver that. If you don't deliver that, your movie's going to be dead on arrival. If you're a comedy, you got to have laughs, man. And laugh, laughter is subjective. What one people, one person finds funny, another person might not. But if I go into a comedy movie and you don't make me laugh, well, that's a problem. That's a big problem, right? Um, so it's not only, there are some general checkboxes like good story, good characters, things like that. But then there's a lot, there are boxes that are specific to the type of movie you want to see. If you're watching an action movie, you want to have great, fantastic, exciting action. Unlike Snake Eyes, where they kept shaking the camera around, you had no idea what was going on in the screen in the first place. But if you're going to an action film, you want to see good action. If you're going into comedy, you want good laughs. If you're going into horror, you want some good, you know, whatever. If you're going into a thriller, you want to feel that suspense. So it's, it's not that you have to either pick the boxes or you have to pick the experience. It's that there are certain boxes that need to be checked in order to deliver the experience. But again, it differs from film to film. Everybody wants there to be a formula. Everybody wants there to be a formula. But there's not. It's it's individual from film to film in their application. So that's that's kind of my take on that, Russell. So that's why 
all I do, I evaluate a movie based on the experience I had with it. But there are things like good characters, good action, good whatever, that contribute to whether or not the movie did give me that experience. So it's it's kind of a mixture of, of all of it together, Russell. All right, next up, we got Caleb who writes, why should anybody be surprised that JK is in the Batgirl movie? Well, they're pretty obvious reasons why people are surprised. Anyway, uh, DC Warner Brothers never said it's in the Battinson universe, and the JK-verse is just still very much the main DCU, with JK as the Gordon of record. I like the way you put that. The Gordon of record. I like that. It's still very much the Gordon of record in the main DCU, uh, and for all we know, his wife's Puerto Rican big deal. Well, yeah, that's all true, Caleb, but we were surprised because of several factors. Number one, Batgirl is going to be a straight-to-HBO movie. Well, another straight-to-HBO property that they're doing is this Gotham PD thing that they're doing. And guess what? They've already made it official that that HBO thing is connected to the Robert Pattinson Batman. They've already made that official. So since that HBO thing was going to be connected to the Robert Pattinson Batman, a lot of us made an assumption and I think a fairly face, uh, 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 safe assumption that this new Batgirl movie that's also going straight to HBO would probably, we didn't know definitively, we didn't know, but would probably be a part of that uh, Robert Pattinson Batman as well. Then, on top of that, when they cast Leslie Grace as the new Batgirl, who was absolutely fantastic in In the Heights, well... She looks a lot more like she could be the daughter of Jeffrey Wright, who is the Commissioner Gordon in the Robert Pattinson Batman, than she does like J.K. Simmons, who is the more mainline DCEU Commissioner Gordon. So when you added that up, you say, well, it's on HBO Max Direct, just like Gotham is, and that's connected to the Robert Pattinson Batman. And they cast Leslie Grace, who looks a lot more like she would be Jeffrey Wright's daughter than she would be J.K. Simmons' daughter. It never meant definitively that means that this Batgirl movie is going to be part of the Robert Pattinson universe. Not at all. But it certainly gives you some very decent basis to make a guess that it would probably be a part of the Robert Pattinson Batman. And so, yes... When they came out and said J.K. Simmons was going to be the Commissioner Gordon of the Batgirl movie, by default, meaning that the Batgirl movie is going to be part of the mainline DCEU universe, it was surprising. It was surprising. I think it's for pretty obvious reasons. Not like a total shock, like the world is falling apart. But yeah, I, I think there was very, very good reason there that if you made an assumption that this was going to be part of the Pattinson Batman universe, there was some good logic there. So yeah. When they said it was JK, it was surprising. A pleasant surprise, uh, but surprising nonetheless. All right, next up. Caleb also writes, separate. Just saw the 2012 Danish film The Hunt with Mads Mikkelsen uh, as a teacher who gets accused of indecency by a student. Truly brilliant, especially the script and Mads' very type against type performance. Have you seen it? If so, your thoughts. Thanks and bring on the filthy. No, I had somebody a little while ago tell me about it, though. And I have not yet seen it myself. I have not yet seen it myself. Um, but no, you are not the first person to tell me about it, but it has made me very, very interested in checking it out. I, I am interested in watching it, but I have not had a chance to do that yet. But thank you for putting that on everybody's radar, Caleb. All right, BK Dan writes, 
John, regarding Disney Plus release dates, I think that Marvel shows will drop on Wednesdays and Star Wars shows will drop on Fridays. I mean, that is possible. If they did that, it would mean that they could have Hawkeye shows coming out the same week as Book of Boba Fett shows do. But if I'm not mistaken, I thought Disney already kind of said that their premium stuff, their Star Wars and Marvel stuff were going to drop on Wednesdays moving forward. So maybe they changed their plans. That would accommodate it if, if like Marvel shows dropped on Wednesdays, Star Wars shows dropped on Fridays. That would accommodate it. But it would represent a change of direction that they had. So let's see where they're going with this. I am still very curious what they're doing with Book of Boba Fett now that Hawkeye is going to have episodes coming out in December. It's, it's, it's going to be really, really interesting to see which direction they go with that, BK. Okay, next up. BK also writes, John, got to agree slash extend concerned about Midsommar. Number one, what kind of drugs were they on when writing this? And number two, why weren't they sharing? Yeah, we were talking about Midsommar on the show the other day. Um, it is crazy. I mean, I, and again, some people watch Midsommar and were really able to be impacted and appreciate the artistry of, of what was being made. And, but then there are other people like myself that watch it was like, I get it. There's a lot of artistic merit in this, but what the hell am I watching? I mean, kind of situation. Anne and I talk about it every once in a while because she was just completely baffled by that movie. Anyway, uh, thanks for writing that in, BK. All right, uh, just a couple more here, guys. Uh, the Sock writes, I saw The Big Lebowski for the first time. I hate the movie. I lied to my friends saying I kind of like it when they were watching it because I didn't want to ruin it for him, but I just find it to be a mess. And The Sock, you know what? that's the subjectivity of film, man. It doesn't matter how many people love a movie. The subjectivity of film means that it's art and every single one of us will have a unique response and a unique experience with a piece of art that is going to be different from everybody else. And just because everybody else loves something, because everybody loves The Big Lebowski, but just because everybody else loves something does not mean you're going to. It's not a choice. It's not something you decide. It's the experience you have. And if you watch The Big Lebowski and it didn't work for you, there's nothing wrong with that. Like some people say to me, I hate Star Wars. Okay, that's weird, but all film subjective. It's too bad. I wish you liked it, but you don't. And that's okay. So if you don't like The Big Lebowski, dude, you don't like The Big Lebowski. Nothing wrong with that. All right, next up. Ryan H. writes, Hey, John, I believe you've mentioned that you've watched Banshee. No, I think I said, I think Rob watched Banshee anyway, but I can't remember. I just started watching season four and loved the first three seasons. If you have, did you love it? And if not, do you have any plans to watch it? I do not have any plans to watch it. There are a number of things that I already have higher on the list, but there are other shows that I never had any plans to watch, but enough people kept telling me about it that eventually I gave in and started watching it. So maybe that could be one of them. Thanks for putting that on the radar, Ryan. Appreciate that. All right, last question we will do today comes to us from IMAV, who like tips in like 50 bucks. Thank you, IMAV, supporting our channel on that level, man. Really appreciate that, dude. That's very generous. And IMAV writes, Rob mentioned that he got some new webcams on your advice. Uh, do you know which make slash model webcams he purchased? Yes, because I'm the one who told him to get them. Uh, I do some streaming and I could use an upgrade. Okay, so I will tell you this. I just bought, the next time you see Erin Cummings on the show on Thursday, you're going to see her 
with a new webcam than from the last time she Skyped in. Because I just bought her a new webcam and I just bought Scott Mance a new webcam. Um, and these are brand new webcams that just came out. And I will tell you what they are here. So hold on a second. Uh, okay, let me see if any of you guys in the live chat know which webcam I'm talking about. I, I just want to see if any of you guys know which one I'm talking about. If any of you guys have a guess as to which one it could be. I'm just waiting for a second to see because there's like a 20 second delay between me and you guys watching live. But I just want to see if any of you guys have any guesses. Um, I'm not seeing anybody putting any gets in. Somebody is saying Canon. Nope. It's not a Canon. It is a webcam, not, not a DSLR, not a mirrorless. Um, some people saying the a6600. No, again, this is a webcam, not, uh, not a mirrorless. I use the Sony a6400, uh, soccer guitar saying Logitech. Nope. It's not one of the Logitech ones. So here's what it is. There is a company that puts out a lot of live streaming material called Elgato. They make some audio interfaces. They make some mics. They make live streaming lights. Uh, they make a lot of different stuff called Elgato. And Elgato just came out with a brand new camera called the Elgato Face Cam. It is the most expensive web camera I've ever seen. It is $200. It's 200 bucks, which is by far the most expensive webcam I've ever bought. But it is also the most ridiculously high quality webcam I have ever seen that I've ever seen. Um, they are nutty good. Now, not as good as my dedicated Sony mirrorless a6400 that though with a lens that I use, you're, you're running about a thousand dollars. You can get like a Canon M 200 with a kit lens for probably after taxes and everything about 600 bucks, but you still need capture devices and everything with that too. This webcam, um, is fantastic. It's absolutely fantastic. It is by far the best quality webcam I've ever seen. You just get it, you plug it into your USB port, and away you go. It is a dynamic and fantastic image. I love this thing. So I started buying... Some people are running, wondering how you uh, spell it. Let me put it in the live chat here. The way you spell it is... I just put in the live chat, E-L-G-A-T-O. And the name of the camera is the face cam. So um, I will put it there in the live chat, the Elgato face cam. Wait until you see Aaron on Thursday. It's not going to look as good as this camera, obviously. But if you watch Aaron's last appearance using her webcam on her computer versus her appearance this Thursday using the new Elgato face cam, it's going to be a completely different experience. I mean, they look fantastic. I cannot recommend these highly enough. Now, the only problem, the only problem, and by the way, Project Nova is saying something in the live chat, which is not exactly true. They're like, uh, with the Canon cameras, you no longer need a capture device. That's true, but you're not going to get full quality. Canon and Sony both now have software where you can just plug the cameras in directly into a USB port and use their cameras as if they were webcams. The problem is, though, you're not going to get the full quality of the camera 
doing it that way. They're limited. They're, they're both limited. Sony has their limitations. Canon has their limitations. The best way to use a Canon camera or Sony camera is still to get a dedicated capture device to plug the camera into, whether that's a cam link or some other type of HDMI capture device. That is the only way to get the full quality from those cameras. Uh, but again, um, if you're looking for a webcam, you can get a decent $40, $50 webcam. You can definitely get those. But if you want the best of the best, I am telling you this thing, I am so impressed with it. I really, really am impressed with it. So, uh, yeah, uh, there you go. Anyway, guys, that'll do it for today's installment of the John Campy Show. Listen, there are still more questions uh, to come, but I'm going to do another. I did one last night. I'll do another companion video a little bit later today. So keep your guys' eyes open for that. And then, of course... Don't forget to join us for the John Campy Show again tomorrow. Me and Robert Meyer Burnett, we might have a third guest with us tomorrow. I haven't confirmed that yet, so I won't say, but uh, hopefully there will be. Anyway, guys, special thank you to all of you who sent in the live comments and questions. Number one, because you gave us great fun things to talk about. But number two, you supported this channel as you did it. And all of us involved here at the John Campy Show, thank you guys so very much for your support. All right, guys, that'll do it for me for now. Thanks a lot for being here. My name's John Campia, and until next time, my friends. Bye-bye.